0: Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the N.Y. Deterrence Center. Our host is Dr. Adam Lauffin, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The N.Y. Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrence and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own.
1: Welcome back to another great episode of LucaCast. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have a fantastic guest. Dr. Raji Rajagopalan is the director of the Center for Security, Strategy, and Technology at the Observer Research Foundation in New Delhi. Now, I have to tell you, Raji and I have been friends for probably going on 15 years now, And she is truly one of the most thoughtful voices on national security issues and has, you know, she's traveled the world, she has, you know, global reach and, you know, she's truly one of the bright minds out there that thinks very, very thoughtfully about not only India, her native country, but the United States and the other nations, that are in this, you know, uh tri, if you want to call it tripolar competition and then sort of India's unique role in it. So with that, Raji, thanks for coming on NucleCast.
0: Thank you so much, Adam. Thank you for your very kind introduction. So
1: today we were going to talk about we we don't we have yet, you know, we've had a hundred and ten shows or so now and we've never once really talked about India. And so I wanted to get your take on how India sees itself as a nuclear power and how India looks out at, you know, China, Pakistan, the United States, and and looks at the world and how does it see sort of this tripolar period and these minor, you know, these lesser nuclear powers and just what does it see as the threats in the world and and where India needs to act and how it should act? You know, it's, it's a pretty dynamic environment
0: now. So what is India's sort of take on it? First of all, it's a great um, sort of a discussion, and thank you so much for uh, getting a conversation on India and its perspective uh, out to the broader strategic community in the US and uh, around the world. Um, So, when you look at India, India has had a sort of an uneasy sort of a history with the uh, nuclear non-proliferation order, the NPT, um, as well as the the way things spanned out even over the last few uh, decades, in a sense. So when you look at it, I think India took very active part in framing the nuclear non-proliferation treaty, the NPT, which came about. But the manner in which it came out, uh, India finally decided that it was not going to be part of it. So it starts within a sort of a very uneasy relationship from the early on in that sense. And of course, given the kind of security Um, sort of environment that India is situated in, nobody can be sort of uh, uh, envy of India's geography. We have uh, both on the east and the west, we have uh, adversaries who have been, um, before they came about with nuclear weapons itself, Uh, there have been other kind of threats. India and Pakistan have had a number of wars, and India and China went into a nuclear, um, sort of a border war in 1962. So things have not been pretty easy for India, but even then, India did not really want to go down the path of nuclear weapons, acquiring nuclear weapons. In 1964, when China conducted the first nuclear test, uh, India looked out for nuclear security guarantees from other countries, including uh, UK, US, and other countries uh, and the Soviet Union. But India did not get that. And even then, India did not want to go down the path of uh, conducting nuclear tests and developing its own nuclear weapons program. But India did sort of demonstrate its technological capability abilities uh, through what it called the uh, peaceful nuclear explosion in 1974. But even after that, India was not entirely clear that it wanted to go down that path. And therefore, um, sort of had put a pause many a time they were Uh, Sometimes some governments had sort of restarted the Indian nuclear weapons program. But again, it was halted several times. But back in the, finally in the 1980s, it was very, very clear that China was assisting Pakistan very actively with its nuclear weapons program. And that's when India also decided to. But I think finally, what pushed India to do the 1998 nuclear test was the uh, China-driven threats that was becoming much more which was becoming much more clear in a sense. Uh, In fact, the sale of uh, uh, short and medium range missiles uh, from uh, China to Pakistan, the M9, M11 missiles became a big issue. And also the kind of nuclear assistance that China had provided to Pakistan became a big factor. But by 19... ninety eight 1998, China had become the much larger strategic driver for India as it looked at this nuclear weapon program. Even though earlier the Pakistan had some role as India thought about nuclear weapons program, but by nine, late 1990s, it was China that was becoming much larger uh, as a driver in terms of India's nuclear weapons program. And of course, uh, there was a letter that was leaked out to one of the US media uh, newspapers uh, from Prime Minister Vatul Bihari Bajpai, which categorically talked about China as the driver for India's nuclear weapons program. But even since I think we uh, we have not been, we have not uh, sort of gone into an extensive um, sort of an expansion of India's weapons and uh, nuclear weapons if uh, the arsenal. Um, so if you look at it even today, uh, if you were to make a calculation it 's something like four point five to five nuclear weapons on an average we have grown so that's a, so that can't be called the sort of a a, a massive expansion or significant expansion of any kind. Uh, And India does not seem to be at uh, at this point of time alarmed about the kind of developments that Pakistan has undertaken. Pakistan has actually gone above the uh, India's nuclear um, um, uh, sort of arsenal size, but that does not seem to have had any sort of effect. Uh, But I think the more pertinent issue is how China is undertaking Um, sort of the nuclear modernization, nuclear abgradation in recent times. Uh, In 2021, of course, the discovery of new missile silos. But the problem, at least in the open domain, there is no response. India is yet to come up with any response to China's nuclear advancement. So far, it has not officially responded in any fashion to the quantitative and qualitative changes in China's nuclear weapons capabilities or the possible changes that might happen uh, with regard to China's nuclear doctrine. And I think that's going to be the uh, crux of India's nuclear calculations. Uh, There are other worries. I can come back to it. But I think this, in a sense, is where India is at this point of time. China remains the uh, critical uh, threat, critical challenge when India looks at the uh, Asian strategic scenario.
1: So for, for many Americans, you know, when, when we would talk about, for those of us that that work nuclear issues, prior to the invasion of Ukraine, when we would talk about the most likely use of nuclear weapons, what, what is that scenario? A lot of times folks would say, well, the most likely use is probably a, a conflict between India and Pakistan now we don't necessarily say that anymore but but for you somebody sitting in new delhi do you think this view that that there is this tension between india and pakistan that could lead to nuclear use is is that sort of a an american misreading of the relationship between india and pakistan you know no, like how this- should we understand that
0: Sure. No, like you said, I think this was, the, um, uh, this was the kind of position that we did see from the United States uh, for a very long time. Uh, India-Pakistan conflict escalating to a nuclear crisis that was always seen as the most uh, uh, dangerous flashpoint. Uh, from 90s onwards, you have heard this, in a sense. Uh, but increasingly, you don't hear. But I think there are a couple of different reasons. Over the last uh, close to 10 years, in a sense, there has been a change. And for instance, uh, one of the big problems that India confronted was in terms of how do you respond to Pakistan uh, that is dealing with, for instance, that is supporting terrorists across across the line of actual control line across the border um so cross-border terrorism and what is india's response what what can india do in retaliation and at any point of time over the last several years several decades in a sense pakistan ever since it has gone nuclear in 1998 it has any crisis and pakistani ministers would talk about the use of nuclear weapons as the first uh, first point in a sense first response uh, should india take a retaliatory measure Uh, to a terrorist attack. So there has always been the fear of escalation and that had always deterred the Indian leadership from carrying out any sort of a retaliatory counter-strike to any um, terrorist attack from across the border. That changed with the uh, the Modi government in office. So since uh, uh, 2014 onwards, there has been a change in that. Uh, We have had a number of terrorist attacks even then, 2014, uh, 2016, the URI attack across the border, that was a major one. And India did carry out um, sort of a a response strike, a counter-strike against Pakistani uh, terrorist um, outlets and so on and so forth. And that really, so even prior to that, India's engagement um, uh, in terms of carrying out a counter-strike there was the Pakistani minister of, I think it was minister of defense, uh, who talked about, oh, we are going to use nuclear weapons if, if, if India threatens uh, Pakistan in any manner. But following the India's counter-strike um, operation, um, uh, that particular rhetoric, you did not hear anymore from Pakistan. And you have not really heard that. So you really call the bluff. And that's that was the end of that. So in a sense, since then, the number of terrorist attack, attacks have come down because Pakistan is also mindful of the fact that here is a new leadership that has come into uh, office and that has a slightly different way of responding to terrorist attacks and so on and so forth. So um, that has, uh, so Pakistan's bluff has was called out and that there has been a change. But to me today, so it's always very true that everybody uh, whenever there is a India-Pakistan crisis, we always talk about the potential use of nuclear weapons. There has always been the fear, but nobody really talked about in that uh, in that sense about uh, India and China. India-China and again, there have been uh, multiple border crises, but we have not really uh, talked about. Nobody really talks about the uh, two countries, um, the potential of their uh, them to use a nuclear weapon. Um, they, in both India and China, are seen as much more responsible there are they are responsible stakeholders and the political leadership in both countries are mature enough um, to not loosely talk about uh, nuclear weapons and so, so on and so forth and i think india does believe that china will not again use nuclear weapons china is expected to believe uh, behave as a responsible stakeholder and not engage in even talk about, you know, tactical nuclear weapons or any other weapons and so on and so forth. Um, So there is that stability by and large in the India-China context, which is missing in the India-Pakistan context. But I think things are changing even on the India-China front, though. I think one has to take note of of that. Uh, The kind of predictability that existed on the India-China border front, that's beginning to kind of in a sense, over the last three years, both India and China are engaged in a military conflict. There is an active life conflict on the border uh, since the Galwan conflict in 2020 summer. Um, There have been, I think, 19 levels of military talks between the two countries. There have been diplomatic talks between the uh, foreign ministries of the two countries. And, And the ministers, foreign ministers have met repeatedly but there have not been a complete disengagement of the military forces. So the two sides are still engaged in an active conflict, despite the fact that she and Modi meet at various summits and various meetings here and there on the sidelines of it. Uh, But the fact is that there is that that unpredictability factor that has come into, because many after the Galwan conflict talked about as to why Uh, Why did China walk out of the many of the border agreements, defense agreements that were in place in order to maintain peace and tranquility on the the border? What happened in 2020 that China walked out? China completely disregarded those agreements. And I think as China becomes more and more powerful, this is the kind of behavior that one needs to be prepared for. Uh, In fact, in 2017, there was another border crisis uh, in Doklam, which is a trijunction between India, China and Bhutan. Uh, that conflict lasted for about 72 days. And I think that at that point of time, at least some of us wrote very clearly that this is the kind of China that one needs to be prepared to deal with. This is the kind of aggression. This is the kind of behavior that you're going to be confronted with from now onwards. This is this is not the first time. This is not the last time. This is the first time maybe, but certainly not going to be the last time that you're going to be confronted with this kind of a behavior in China. Uh, but many wanted to believe that that was more of an aberration and that it was it was possibly a local commander who had you know uh, done something but not really part of a calculated strategy from china but I think, so China has changed and as China, like I said, as China becomes more militarily, more powerful uh, with um, uh, a lot of asymmetric capabilities, but are also strengthening its nuclear capabilities and so on and so forth. There are certain cohesive elements that come into China's strategy vis-a-vis India for sure. Um, and I think India has to be mindful of that. India has to prepare for all kinds of strategies uh, for a long time. So when Galwan happened to give you an, just to give you an example, indian military was always prepared for uh, to prevent an all-out aggression complete aggression across the board uh, a territorial violation to integrity a violation of the territorial integrity of india but india was not necessarily prepared for a salami slicing tactics that china had been adopting in south china sea for instance that's a change that we have been seeing in for instance uh, in across the entire line of actual control the border between india and china um, so Indian military had to adapt, and so on and so forth. So I'm not entirely sure that the Indian leadership is anti- is completely capturing the kind of changes that are um, uh, happening with, with regard to China's military strategy, which involves even the nuclear aspects. And India needs to be prepared for all um, any and all eventualities, in a sense.
1: This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the Amlaw Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. Let me ask you so here in the u s we have uh, i don't know if you've ever seen this but there's a map and it you know it's a map of China but it's it's a map that uh it's a map that has, you know, uh, Manchuria to the east, East Turkestan, Tibet, the southern regions, the southwestern regions that China has absorbed since 1949, you know, and it, it, it essentially shows a a Han China that has been expansionist, you know, over the last 70 years, it, do, do Indians see China as an expansionist, uh, you know, a, a geographically expansionist country as, as sort of we do? Because, you know, the Americans think a lot about Taiwan. And and is that something that that you guys are thinking about and you worry about? And do you wonder, will it cause escalation? And then how do you see how you might control that escalation?
0: So, India does worry about, and India has expressed those very same concerns that China is an expansionist power. In fact, from 2014, um, that election campaign onwards, Prime Minister Modi, when he was a Prime Ministerial candidate, from those days, one has heard um, uh, both Prime Minister Modi as well as the External Affairs Minister repeatedly making these statements that China is is an expansionist power, China is for land grabbing, uh, whether it is... South China Sea, East China Sea, Taiwan, India-China border, and so on and so forth. In fact, the state of Arunachal Pradesh, on India's northeast, Taiwan calls it the Southern Tibet, and that's uh, not really recognize as an Indian state. It's another matter that we have a regular election in that particular state. It's completely integrated as an Indian state. There is, but the fact is that China is an expansion state, and as China becomes more and more powerful, especially in economic and more military terms. Uh, they are going to be. And China is also an insecure power increasingly. And I think that insecurity drives a lot of the uh, aggression that we are seeing in recent time, in years, in a sense. Because even in 2020, the Galwan, when it happened, uh, there were a lot of questions as to why China is doing what it was doing, because it was already in, uh, sort of engaged in a uh, confrontation with the, all of the South China Sea countries, even in the middle of the pandemic, China was engaged in uh, maritime transgressions into Indonesia's exclusive economic zone, Malaysia, Vietnam, Philippines, of course, Taiwan repeatedly, and of course, India as well. And of course, in the East China Sea. So why was China making an enemy out of everybody and creating uh, that hostile um, sort of an environment surrounding them? Um, It was not very clear, but I think some of the issues, uh, some of the um, Chinese writings that I've seen and I've heard about is that you know they are insecure. If, they're, if if insecurity is going to drive China to do what it is doing, being uh, becoming more aggressive, then there is very little than anybody in, 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 to uh, to sort of uh, pacify China. But China's territorial grab and territorial expansionist policies are very very clear. And uh, but if what India is trying to do, I think that's something that uh, I think it's still. Uh, still something in the works. India's military, for instance, has several deficiencies. Even when it comes to um, India's nuclear weapons capabilities, uh, India's nuclear weapons arsenal is fairly small. We haven't really grown very much like it said in the beginning. But the areas that India needs to focus is on delivery systems. Um, India's missiles are still short-range missiles, medium-range missiles, nowhere uh, capable enough to reach target all of China. Um, India put to, uh, uh, India put in place something called the IGMDP, Integrated Guided Missile Development Program, in the mid-1980s. But 40 years later, India still does not have an ICBM. The longest-range missile, land-based missile, that India talks about is a 5,000 kilometer, which is still not operational. So India has serious deficiency. Now, of course, when it, India looks at the sea-based capabilities, the SLBMs, Uh, submarine launch ballistic missiles that's another story the uh, missile ranges are like even shorter so in terms of what india needs to focus on and what india needs to focus vis-a-vis the uh, china threat i think still it's a still work in progress india does not have uh, adequate capabilities to respond to all of the various threats and challenges that comes from China, whether it is in terms of convent, purely conventional capabilities or even in terms of strategic missiles, uh, India's missiles are um, not long enough. Um, uh, range-wise, we are far too short to um, target all of China. So that those are serious deficiencies. Um, and of course, India's number of fighter squadron that we have, or in terms of India's submarine fleet, uh, inventory, all of that is coming down. Um, So, India has multiple deficiencies despite the kind of uh, two-front threat that India continues to, uh, has been faced with uh, for the last several years, and that threat is only becoming uh, much more um, sort of evident, much more, much bigger a problem in terms of even a collusion between China and Pakistan, even that is the reality. But Indian ability to uh, deal with them, to address these threats, I think given the kind of challenges um, economic and developmental challenges, India has not been um, sort of. Uh, we are doing, but I think it is not still not nowhere near the capability. It makes that Indian military need in order to defend against China.
1: So what's driving India's, I guess, failure to develop the kind of capabilities that can hold, you know, Beijing and Shanghai at risk and potentially demonstrate, you know, Indian credibility and seriousness uh, to, you know, you know, obviously in the hope of trying to make China more careful in its actions and, and more conservative in its, you know, efforts to cause challenges, you know, in India's Northeast. Is there what, what, what exactly is driving that failure, like you said, to, to build an ICBM or to build the kinds of capabilities that might cause China mm-hmm. you know, to pause?
0: Yeah, there are uh, multiple factors contributing to that. But one of the, I think, the fundamental factors um, that affects India's ability to um, engage or do all of that is needed for the military is the fundamentally the size of the economy if the size of the economy is small and your economic growth rate is not for a longest time india had what it used to call the hindu growth rate of two to three percent growth rate economic growth rate that was nowhere you know the near the kind of size size of the economy that we need to have from there we have come to about we went up to about uh, a few years ago maybe close to a decade ago we went up to about 9%, 10% nine percent ten percent growth rate, but then that that was just one or two years or two or three years unless India is able to sustain a high economic growth rate for a relatively long period of time. India is going to be continually faced with economic challenges unless your economy is size, um, is significantly large you will your ability to spend on military, or your ability to spend on your strategic capabilities, your ability to spend on the Sino-Indian border infrastructure, the strategic infrastructure that is required to get your troops to the border areas in a relatively equipped pace, all of that is going to be limited by your economic capacity. So economic capacity has been one of the critical factors that has really uh, affected India's ability to kind of build up the uh, it's modern a uh, modern military in terms of its uh, modern capabilities modern infrastructure border infrastructure which is extremely uh, critical in terms of the uh, especially of the india sino indian border a second factor is of course uh, india's continuing um, sort of a dependence on institutions like the defense research and development organization drdo drdo has been pumped in with a lot of money with very little accountability so anytime that they are going to uh, and Even when you look at the DRDO, one of the areas that they have done well actually is in terms of missiles. But even within the missile area, when you look at it, the longest range that we have produced is 5,000 kilometer and which is still not operational. That really tells you the state of the affairs within the uh, within the DRDO, and uh, and there has to be a serious accountability and questions raised when things are not delivered in a timely fashion and so on and so forth. And by and large, India has tried to rely on state-owned enterprises. Again, that has brought down the competencies, uh, efficiency to produce things on a on a on a sort of in a timely fashion and so on and so forth. So that's been another important factor as to why we have not really succeeded. In the manner in which, and uh, of course, our Indian defence budget continues to be uh, still under two percent, and that's a serious lacuna if we have to be able to. And of the, uh, you know, two um, percent of the GDP that you're talking about, much of its, uh, much of the budget goes to uh, pay and pension, pay um, pensions and so on and so forth. So the amount of money that is available for capital expenditure is still minuscule amount and of course the much of the uh, within the three services when you look at it much of the money goes to the army um least of the money goes to the navy so in terms of our ability to develop these capabilities in a timely fashion the amount and both especially when it comes to the navy and of course uh, even um air force uh the capability development takes a very long time so unless you are able to make the right investment today your ability to produce capabilities uh, because these are uh, time-consuming processes and so on and so forth, unless you put in the money today, you're not going to be able to develop those capabilities that are so badly required for the, um, uh, for the Air Force and the Navy. And um, so given, the, again, the budget constraints, uh, India has not been able to produce uh, the kind of capability mix that is required for the Indian military to uh, deal with China problem.
1: We're at that time in the show where I like to bring out Bob. Uh, I don't know if you've never met Bob, but he's my genie. And what I do is I bring out Bob, I rub my lamp and Bob pops out and then Bob gives all of my guests three wishes, but they have to be related to the, to the conversation. So if, if you, Raji have three wishes, what would those three wishes be?
0: I think one, my first and foremost would be for India to have clarity in terms of its diplomatic partnerships, military alliances, military partnerships that we want to build, develop. Uh, Because I think one of my my big problems when I look at the Indian foreign policy or strategic policy is that India puts its foot in multiple camps uh and nobody is sure where india stands india one day it is talking to the quad members and it's great equations with the quad countries uh, if you look at the foreign ministers of the quad countries they, the way they engage with each other you can see from their body language their chemistry it's fantastic they talk their ability to joke with each other all of that comfort level is so good fantastic but the very next day india is talking to uh Briggs. Uh, the third day, India is seen to be talking to the uh, RIC, the Russia-India-China Cooperation uh, Grouping, or otherwise the SEO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. So there are, you know, India puts its foot in multiple camps. I, 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 I'm, I'm entirely in agreement that there is a difference in the in the quality of engagement that India has with the Quad and those minilateral partnerships that have become uh, that have come about in the last few years and there's a significant difference when you look at the india's engagement with the BRICS or the seo and the ric and so on and so forth there's a qualitative difference the kind of engagement the strategic engagements that we have with the quad and other minilaterals in the indo-pacific is far far superior far more advanced in terms of the kind of uh, quality of engagements quality of conversations that we have the seriousness of the issues that we discuss all of that is very different but i think um, as much as it is, it's confusing to the uh, Indians. It's a much bigger confusion to the to an outsider as to how does India deal with these multiple uh, powers in a sense. And I think that's part of my problem. That's my I I understand, but the fact is that I I think we need to be we need to send very clear signals to our partners to our friends uh, around the world because putting putting our foot in multiple camps means that when there is a crisis, you won't have anybody, and you are not a sort of a dependable partner to anybody else and neither can they be a dependable partner to you. So I think that's part of my big problem and I hope India does get that bit clarified sooner than later.
1: Yeah. Okay, so that's that's wish number one. What's wish number two?
0: Ah, that's better in terms of our uh, military capabilities because I think we need to get realistic about Uh, the China threat, we can't wish away. Uh, Wishing away or hoping, hope is not a policy. Hoping that China will never go to a war with India, which was the problem in the 1960s, late 1950s and early 60s. um, Because uh, Prime Minister Nehru was absolutely uh, clear that China would never go and get into a war with India. But that was, you know, that particular thing was completely... Um, are shattered when the 1960 war happened and so on and so forth. So similarly, I don't want us to be under the impression that, you know, India and China are great friends, great partners, you know, uh, even after the Doklam crisis, uh, for instance, the two prime ministers, are the two leaders engaged in informal summits. One happened in, um, in China, a second informal summit happened in India. And both and more, a lot of the pe- members of the strategic Indian strategy community, wrote about uh, as to how there is a reset in the relationship, and you know, India and China are back together and so on and so forth. And I was like, that's just not really true. We uh, we don't seem to be learning the right lessons uh, from each of the crises that we uh, have with China. So when, for instance, Doklam happened, I was like, absolutely very clear that this is just the beginning of the kind of China that you have to be prepared to deal with. But that was not. So in terms of our military capability development, you have to have that strategic vision. Um, A few years ago, we did come out with, uh, in fact, the late CDS, the Chief of Defense Staff, uh, General Rawat, late Rawat, uh, talked about us to characterize China as the number one national security threat. But that needs to be translated further into the kind of military capability development. That I am not entirely seeing it as of now and i think that's my second wish that we need to build up the military capability rhetoric is one thing but we need to get things moving in terms of and that requires capability development but that also requires institutional changes institutional cultural changes our, our culture within an institution has to change if we have to be able to be uh, agile and able to um, you know address things in a in a much more quick uh, fashion so that's my second <laughs>
1: Then then your third and final wish.
0: Third and final wish. Uh, oh, that's going to be a tough one. Um, there are some internal issues that are uh, some of the developments that are worrying in recent times. I think uh, um, we need to... Uh, more recently, a lot of analysts have talked about, most recently, of course, um, um, Dr. Ashley Tellis talked about possible erosion of democracy in the case of India. I think those are issues that we really need to get an act on because it is just not for the sake of identity as a democracy, but the democracy in practice. And elections are not the only thing that determines whether you are a democracy or not. The kind of practices that we have within the country, I think that those are areas that we need to improve upon, um, strengthen, um, uh, and I think that's that that has ramifications both for internal, you know, overall cohesion, but also for our external partnerships, um, our diplomatic engagements. Those do have implications for that as well. So it is not limited to something in the domestic context alone. So that's my third wish.
1: Thanks for that, Raji. And thanks for you. You know, it's that time of the show where we, unfortunately, we're out of time. So thanks for uh, coming on Nuclecast. We appreciate you being here and offering us a a really interesting take. Because I don't think many Americans, you know, we focus on Russia and China and to some degree North Korea. And we often overlook India,
0: which is, you know, it's the most
1: populous nation in the world. It's one of the largest economies. It's a nuclear power. So you've you've really enlightened us on sort of Indian thinking. So thanks for being here to do that.
0: Thank you, thank you, Adam. Thanks for the opportunity to be part of this conversation. Thank you.
1: And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. And we will see you next time on Nuclecast. You know, I first met Raji, I don't know, maybe 2010, uh, and I invited her to the U.S. to be on a you know, a group that we were doing a Delphi study and we were looking at Asia Pacific security issues. And then we've stayed in touch and I've gone to India a few times and we've met up in DC and just in interacting and working with Raji over the last almost 15 years, she has always struck me as one of the most thoughtful and insightful people thinking and talking about broader security issues, and particularly in helping Americans like me understand how India sees the world and why does it do what it does. Because, you know, for many Americans, you know, because we we have such a large Indian community in the U.S., it's, it's sort of hard for us not to think of India as a country that would naturally be aligned with the U.S., when in reality, India takes a very independent course. And so to to talk to Raji was it was really great, and to sort of get an update on what what the Indians are doing and why they're doing it, where they where they succeeding and failing, it was great to hear that from Raji. So hopefully you enjoyed it as well.
0: This has been a production of the NWA Deterrent Center, a 501c3 that seeks to educate key decision makers, stakeholders, and the public to ensure a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent. Our executive producer is Kimberly Channington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Krumphoff. Help us grow our followers by sharing it and follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at NuclearCast.